Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful that we can sit under your word, and we thank you that you speak through your word to us. And Lord, as we learn about your word, I pray that we'll be in awe of your word, that we will see it as truly powerful in all its forms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past weekend was the NFL draft, which was a blessed blessed oasis of football for the NFL starved among us. And if you don't know much about the NFL draft, it's a bunch of general managers representing all the different teams, and they assess the pool of players who declare themselves eligible, most of them from the college ranks. And what they try to do is select people who will fit into their team and into their scheme. Uh, They're trying to draft the next Chris Jones, Travis Kelsey, or, or Pat Mahomes. And what's really interesting about these drafts is there are famous examples of when general managers have gotten it wrong, way wrong, and eventually got fired. So they're all in the prediction market, right? How will this person do against NFL talent? And if some general manager could predict the future and the future performance of all of these players, they would be perennial Super Bowl champions. If you have someone who could, let's say, predict the financial markets and, let's say, purchase Bitcoin seven years ago, they would be unbelievably wealthy. Even if somebody were able to pick 80% of the stock picks right and accurately, they'd be the richest man on earth. If somebody could predict the location of a tornado, they would be Weather Channel celebrities and save many lives. If you could predict an earthquake, you can save thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives. You see, if you could predict the future, you would be the most powerful man or woman on earth, right? All of us know that there is a a certain power in predictions, a certain power in prophecies. In fact, I read uh, on Friday, do you know how many Americans believe in astrology? One in four. They actually take that stuff seriously because there's a certain power of what is my moon saying to me or what planet needs to be in alignment for me to have success. They want to predict the outcome and predict the future. We all instinctively know that there is a power given to someone who can predict the future. And what we're about to read is not just a prediction of the future, a prophecy of the future, we actually read a fulfillment of prophecy that feeds into further prophecy. It's a long text. We're going to go to Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80. And remember, the whole backdrop is God has announced through Gabriel the birth of two men, John and then eventually Jesus. The mothers met, they celebrated together, and now the spotlight is on John the Baptist. Starting verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. 
And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So what we see in the first section is a fulfillment of many, many prophecies that were specifically given to Zechariah in the temple. Remember chapter 1? After 400 silent years, Zechariah goes into the temple to offer an incense offering, and boom, Gabriel appears and gives these prophecies. Prophecies like his wife, who is barren, will have a son. Prophecies like his name will be John. And when he asks for a sign, a prophecy of what will happen, you're going to be a mute for nine months. So there's a fulfillment of prophecies taking place. And in the elation of this moment, when all these prophecies, these immediate prophecies are fulfilled, he gives further prophecy. Now, it's really fascinating. Prophecy has always been recognized as an act of power. It has been recognized as something that is unique to the Lord. It is regulated. And part of prophecy is not just speaking from the Lord. Part of prophecy, and to get prophetic credentials, is to predict an event in the future and then see that event realized. In Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him, right? He is tested by predicting the future. Now, it is also true that sometimes on occasion the Lord would allow a prophecy to come true to test people because with that prophecy would come an invitation to worship other gods. But by and large, for a prophet to be a prophet, they must accurately predict the future. And in this case, Gabriel issues prophecy that comes true, and that leads Zechariah to give a declaration of prophecy. There is power in prophecy. And I'll admit, sometimes when you read through those prophetic portions of Scripture, they tend to kind of all bleed together. And do you know how much of the Bible 
is prophecy? One in four verses. One in four verses is prophecy. This is a book of prophecy that forecasts the future of what will take place. And what I want to do to today is explore the power of prophecy. And we see it in action in this verse. We see fulfilled prophecy, forecasted prophecy, and a future prophet. And all of this is to help us have an appreciation of the power of God at work in the scriptures through forecasted and fulfilled prophecies. There is power in prophecy, and to harness this power, we, we need to understand it. So there will be some sections here that will require a little bit more thinking than normal, okay? So let's look at the first part, fulfilled prophecy. Start in verse 57. Now at the time, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Right? This is uh, every birth, right, is a cause for celebration, but especially this one. Because this one was given to a barren woman who was beyond her years. It's a miracle. Remember, this is the fulfillment of Luke 1.13. The angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Right? Two prophecies there. Your wife, well, actually three, will get pregnant, give birth to a son who will be named John. It was a, a prophecy against all odds. And so now you have this, this community celebration and this celebration continues to the eighth day, which was a critical day. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Right? This was a great day for everybody but John. Right? But, but why did they do it? Well, it was commanded, Leviticus 12.3. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant given to Abraham to make a great nation. And the idea was that the blessing of Abraham would be physically you know, passed on from generation to generation to generation to all of Abraham's children. It, it was a sign that we believe that the promises of Abraham still apply to us in this day. And so, there is a naming process and And they are trying to figure out what to call him. In 59, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. John literally means the Lord is merciful, is a great name. The problem was there's nobody in that family that shared the name. They were expecting, expecting ZJ, little Zech, Zechariah Jr. That was the normal course of action. But Elizabeth, knowing that it was prophesied that his name was to be John, was insisting that no, you need to call him John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. <laughs> and, and, and get this, can we get a second opinion from Zechariah over here? And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And asked, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Now, Zechariah could not speak. Do you remember why he couldn't speak? He is looking at this. Angel, 
who appears in the temple, who's telling him all these great things, and he says, do you think you can give me a sign? Where it's pretty obvious that the angel's speaking prophecy is the sign. And so the angel says, sure, how about this for a sign? And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe in my words which were fulfilled in their time. And so the sign was he would be a mute. And, and, and given that they were making signs to him, we can properly conjecture that he was a deaf mute. He was in this prison wall. And so there is a prophecy still to be fulfilled, right? Just because John was born doesn't mean that all these things have taken place. There's another element of prophecy that must be fulfilled. And what's the prophecy? His name must be John. And... What he did was he grabbed a writing tablet, probably a square piece of wood covered with wax, and wrote down the the sentence, his name is John. Prophecy fulfilled through the actions of someone. They weren't going to test God and say, little Zach, and see what happens. And once that prophecy is fulfilled, another prophecy is fulfilled. All of a sudden, his, his tongue loosens, his lips are able to move, he's able to force wind through his vocal box, and all of a sudden, he is able to speak, and he is blessing God. And you look at the movement, right? They go from, they go from celebrating when John is born to wondering what's going on here with this whole John name business, and now... They're in fear. And the fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. They're like, what is going on? A barren woman gives birth. They have this weird naming process. And then deaf mute Zechariah got his voice back right after he was named. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was upon him? I mean, this is a special birth to a special person who is going to point to an even more special person in the future. Now, as the reader, right, we, we see something beyond what the original audience saw, right? They saw the original birth. They saw the naming process. They saw the, the miracle of the voice coming back. But what we see is the fulfillment of prophecy, Right? All of these things that were told by the angel happen. And when you see somebody, let's say, get a bunch of things right, you have a friend who's a stock picker who is nailing things, he has an 80% correct rate on which stocks to pick, aren't you going to ask him, what are you picking next? Is somebody in your office pool is getting a perfect bracket through the first two rounds, who did he pick to be champion? Right? When somebody is on a roll and they seem to be showing skill in getting things right, or they might have some prophetic gift, you want to know what else you got. And so we're tantalized with these fulfilled prophecies. And then Zechariah gives a prophecy of his own. He's going to answer the question, what then will this child be? And this is where we come to the forecasted prophecy. Verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit 
and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, I find this interesting. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Do you know who else was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied earlier? Elizabeth. And who else was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied in his own way in utero? John. This is the first family of prophets. All of them have this gift and this knack for forecasting uh, the future. And, and notice he's using all these past tenses, right? For he has visited and redeemed his people. In, in Greek grammar, pardon me geeking out here, it's called a prophetic errorist. It's as good as done. These are future events that are as good as done. These will happen. First of all, the Lord has visited his people. And this is not a, a visit where he comes over, sips coffee with you, and talks about how to solve the world's problems. No, this is a heavenly invasion where he comes among his people and actually solves the world's problems. And in this case, he is going to redeem his people. He is going to rescue his people because he's raised up a horn of salvation. Now, that term horn I, I, is fascinating. Finish the sentence. If you mess with the bull, you get the horns, right? Ranching wisdom for you, right? If you've never been on a ranch, you see a bull who has horns, don't mess with him. Leave him alone. Well, the idea is that the strength of the bull is in his horns. The strength of the ox is in his horns. And did you know, I, they actually would take horns from an ox and put them on helmets and give them to warriors in Israel. So there were Vikings in Israel. Who knew? But the idea is it anticipates the strength and power of this future warrior, this heir of David, this Messiah. And this is consistent with what we see in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Spoke by the mouth. One mouth. One testimony. Spoken by holy people set apart by God who were prophets who were of old. All those Ezekiel's and Nahum's and Jeremiah's. All of those were speaking about this future event. That the horn of David will be raised up to redeem and rescue his people. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, this is going to require some thinking here. Because there's some questions that we need to ask. That we should be saved. Saved in what sense? Physically, spiritually, from our enemies. What enemies are we talking about? Are we talking about Philistines? Are we talking about Romans? Are we talking about the, the dark powers like Satan and demons? This speaks of a future deliverance, right? This is a prophecy of the future. And we all know that the expectation of Israel at that time was that they were an oppressed people. They lived in a conquered nation. They answered to a pagan king in Rome, and they were governed by an appointed pagan ruler in Jerusalem or Caesarea, to be more precise. They were not their own. They were oppressed. And so they always expected, and this is one of the tensions that we see in the Gospels, right? That is Jesus going to be this, this political ruler, this superhero that's going to come and give us our country back? 
And when they found out that Jesus was not going to be that kind of ruler, they said, crucify him, right? They were expecting a political deliverance. And so what is going on here? Is he talking about the need for a political deliverance? Is that the deliverance from our enemies? Well, this is where it's helpful to look at the next passage to see who and what is being talked about. Verse 72. To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Were they right in expecting a political deliverance? Well, when they were captive in Egypt, in Exodus 2, 23-24, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. You know, they were right to expect a physical deliverance. So we come into some questions, right? Did Zechariah get it wrong? Because there was no physical deliverance of Israel. Now, this is met with three responses, three possible responses. One, a progressive or liberal Christian would say, that's not a big deal. The Bible's a human book. Yeah, sure, they prophesied, but they got it wrong. Big deal. There's a lot wrong with the Bible. You can just dismiss it that way. Another way to deal with it is to say, maybe it wasn't a physical deliverance that was promised. Perhaps it was a spiritual deliverance that was promised. That these are spiritual promises. It's, it's a spiritual deliverance given to the spiritual sons of Abraham. Does that make sense? And this is tempting, isn't it? It's to spiritualize a prophecy. But when you do that, there's a loss of power in that prophecy. In the 19th century, there was a Baptist pastor named William Miller. He and his followers, the Millerites, believed through William Miller's teachings, that they had the exact date of the return of Jesus Christ pegged. You want to know what that date was? Of course you do. October 22nd, 1844. And so he gained a sensational following. They all anticipated that on October 22nd, 1844, the skies would be opened up and they'd see Jesus coming back just like it was forecasted in Scripture. And did that happen? No. No. And so they went through something called the Great Disappointment and they began to rethink maybe, maybe it wasn't a physical return of Christ. It was a spiritual return of Christ. And from that, you actually got the Seventh-day Adventist. We believe that Jesus came back in spiritual form on October 22nd, 1844. But when you look at all of these literal prophecies that are being fulfilled in the immediate context, right? Barren woman pregnant, named John, his tongue is loose and is able to speak again. Zechariah did not have in mind a spiritual prophecy. So how do you reconcile it? Well, there's a two-stage advent of Jesus Christ. 
He showed up one time, and he's going to show up again. Some of the prophecies are fulfilled during the first coming of Christ. Some will be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. And so you look at these hostile people, the Jews who opposed Jesus, who opposed Paul. And Paul says of them in Romans 11, 28-29, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. He's not talking about spiritual Israel here, right? These are the enemies of the gospel, the Jews who are persecuting him and his followers. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Eventually, when Jesus comes back, he will rescue politically the Jewish people. They'll look upon him who they have pierced, weep, mourn, and there will be a great restoration in that day. In fact, I look at the preservation of Israel against all odds. It's just a sign that this will happen in the future. There is a two-stage prophecy to take place. But in the meantime, but in the meantime, there is another enemy that Jesus has come to conquer, an enemy that, that the people of Israel did not fully comprehend or understand. That you have a Messiah who was going to reign forever, he had to defeat the enemy of that forever reign, which is death. And death is caused by sin. And so Jesus was on a mission before he was the political savior. He was going to be the spiritual savior to rescue people from the stronghold of sin. And so Zechariah speaks to his son in this prophecy and talks about how this will come to place. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist is going to have a, a, a ministry of preparation. This is forecasted in, in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's a messenger before that great day. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert highway for God. That is John's prophetic call. He was called to prophesy, to point to Christ, and to do a special ministry to prepare the way is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. For them to deal with death you have to deal with the cause of death, which is sin. And to deal with that, they have to be forgiven and know how to do that. Now, now the nation of Israel, they honestly, sincerely believed that we're good. We are a persecuted people. We are God's chosen people. We are conquered by these filthy Gentiles, and God will deliver us someday. We keep the Sabbath. We eat kosher. Never tasted bacon in my life. My children are circumcised, whether they like it or not. We are good. And what John the Baptist does is he has a ministry of letting them know it's not just the Gentiles who are sinners. You are too, and you need to change. Fourteen years ago when I moved here, I, I had to make a, an adjustment in my evangelism strategy. Uh, before I lived here, I lived in, well, you can say I was sojourning or exiled to California in deep blue Burbank. And 
there's all the people who make your movies. And so I'm with a bunch of young professionals, animators, people who work on sets. And I remember pushing one of my kids on the swing and talking to a dad next to me who's also pushing his kid on the swing. And one of my evangelistic strategies is, what do you do for a living? Knowing that they're going to ask me, and then, boom, get into the gospel, right? Well, I asked him, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm an animator for DreamWorks. You know, we talked about that. So, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> you know, and I, I followed him to the merry-go-round. I followed him to the <laughs> jungle gym, and he kept on going someplace else. It didn't work out. But uh, I remember when I cashed my first check here, back when it was Flint Hills Christian Church, I, I went to the Emporia State Bank on industrial, and the lady got the check and said, oh, I need to have my manager look at this. He looked at this, and then the manager and the lady came, and the manager said, are you the new pastor of Flint Hills Christian Church? Yes. Well, nice to meet you. We're so glad to have you in Emporia. I'm like, what kind of world is this? <laughs> but what I found is there's a lot of people who, who sincerely believe they're saved. I was baptized or I've never killed anyone. They do all these works. And so what I found is I have to get people unsaved to get them saved. Right? You have to get them unsaved to get them saved. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's like, you guys do not have your act together. He had a prophetic ministry. And what he will do is by pointing out their sins, by, by pointing to their need of a Savior, they'll be able to appreciate it. And this is the fruit. Verse 68, or 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. Right? There's a sunrise, there's a beautiful sunlight that's going to draw them to the mercies and wonders of God. And let's say you are cave exploring and we'll, in New Mexico. They have a very extensive cave system there. And you go down with your backpack and your flashlight. And, and as you go, you are wise. Every time you find a new cavern, you put a little arrow so you know how to find your way back. So after hiking for three hours, your flashlight starts going dim and then it goes out. That would be terrifying. I mean, that's like my, my nightmare. Trapped in a cave, pitch black, three hours in, you have no idea how you can get back. But imagine the joy if, let's say, you remembered because you wear cargo shorts like a responsible 40-year-old, <laughs> and you check every pocket, and what do you know? You know, you got the pocket knife, keys, axe, whatever. There's an extra set of batteries. And how you rejoice at that dim light that's going to start to show all the arrows on your way out. And then imagine the celebration when you see the sunlight. You have escaped. John the Baptist was the flashlight that pointed to the sunlight that brings mercy and salvation. You know, that is the honored call that he has. He's going to help fulfill Isaiah 62 through 3. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and the thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. He's just restating what has been told in the Old Testament, that when the Messiah comes, all will be well. All will be well. So what kind of child will this be? Well, he's forecasted that he'll point to the great day, and then we see the future prophet, verse 80. 
And the child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Yeah, this is a summary of his life until we get to chapter 3. We read in Matthew 3, 4, And now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. He had the appearance of Elijah, another prophetic forerunner. 2 Kings 1.8, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. So you have John who's wearing camel hair, and I looked this up. Camel hair is very thick, very coarse, it's water-repellent, and it keeps you very warm. So there is a purpose to this, where he is able to live in the desert, and he was basically wearing his tent. He ate locust. He ate locust, which was not a forbidden food, by the way, and it was very protein-rich, and very plentiful in the desert. And for those of you who think that eating locusts is gross, have you ever thought about shrimp? I mean, they're like the cockroaches of the ocean. And I love them. I love them. And he drank high-calorie honey. So he was able to be in the wilderness, and he was a prophet who would not be bought. Nobody can bribe him, steer him. He was able to tell the truth, and he had no worry about the consequences, and God used him to do great things. That's the kind of man he was going to be. And all of these prophecies point to this awesome prophet who will point to something greater. I mean, that's the power of prophecy, right? He's announced with fulfilled prophecy. And by being announced with fulfilled prophecies, the anticipation is, well, what else you got? And Zechariah tells us. So why is prophecy so powerful? I have four reasons why. Uh, fulfilled prophecy means that God knows the future. God knows the future. I did a little research, and I asked Google. That's how I do research. Has there ever been a perfect NCAA bracket? Has anybody gotten all 63 games right? You know what? It's never happened. The most anybody has gotten right was uh, about three years ago, where some... uh, but if, uh, it was a neuropsychologist from Ohio got the first 49 games right. He picked the elite eight, right? Unbelievable. Do you know how many winners he picked after that? One. You're like, man, so far. Do you know how many prophecies were fulfilled about Jesus from the Old Testament? Conservatively, they say 300. 300 for 300 is pretty good. All right, the fact that God just knows that and then tells us ahead of time, that is remarkable by itself. Fulfilled prophecy means that God knows the future. The second power of prophecy is how does God know the future? Does he just look at the movie of history and predict it? Well, he prophesied that Zechariah... And his wife, who was barren, would get pregnant, right? And how did that happen? Because God did it. See, the reason why God knows the future is because he declares the future. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. Everything that God wants to happen will happen. He declares it, and then he tells the prophets about what he's about to do, and then he does it. 
Thirdly, fulfilled prophecy validates revelation. What the Bible predicts comes to pass. What the Bible predicts comes to pass. You look at all these prophecies, like being born in Bethlehem, being born of a virgin, entering to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, being crucified on the cross. All those were predicted centuries before they happened. Zechariah, he testifies about the promises to David and to Abraham, which feed into this prophetic expectation that these things will happen. And he always gets them right, and they are fulfilled literally. Now, what's interesting is other religions might make a prophecy, but what do they do with unfulfilled prophecy? Well, they adjust their revelation. For instance, the president of the Mormon church is the living prophet, and there is a teaching that he can override previous prophecy with new prophecy. In the Quran, which is interesting, they, they don't have too many prophecies in there. They teach that the most current version of the Quran is the correct one. That Allah is so sovereign that he can update his own book. But Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. What he has said, he will, will he not do it? Or has he not spoken? Will he not fulfill it? This means when God speaks, it's the first and final draft. What he says stands. That is what will happen, which means you can count on it. I mean, let's say you were tragically killed and you go up to heaven. You stand before God and that question is asked of you where God asks, why should I let you into my heaven? And you quote, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you go through the gospel and you say, that is why I am confident I can go to heaven. What do you say, Jesus? Well, I know I said that 2,000 years ago, but things change. All the Jews protested about getting away from eating kosher, so I decided to reinstate that. Sorry. I mean, that's what you're looking at. But the fact that God fulfills prophecy means he can fulfill his promise. Because if he fulfills prophecy, it means we can believe in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All of the promises, all of the prophecies that God makes, he can back up and will. And finally, prophecy is powerful because prophecy points to Jesus. Now, not every prophecy points to Jesus. There are some specific prophecies of destruction in the Old Testament that point to destruction of certain cities. But the prophetic arc of Scripture ultimately finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And our zeal for prophecy isn't to read the newspaper to see what's going to happen next so that we can beat the system. No one knows the hour or the day. Don't spend time with, with Daniel and a calculator and a newspaper to try to figure out the exact date. The whole point of prophecy is to point to Jesus, and he will come back when he's good and ready. And by all means, look for the signs. Live hopefully, anticipate when that day will come. But the true power of prophecy is pointing to a man who has prophesied to come, the Son of God, who lived the perfect life that you should have lived, Die the death on the cross that you deserved, endure the wrath of God in your place, and then rose again so that all those who believe in him can have eternal life. 
who will come back again as he predicted and prophesied so that all of us can see Jesus face to face. See, the purpose of prophecy and the reason why it has this overarching power is ultimately it points to the most powerful being in the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Prophecy is powerful because it points to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just grateful for your word that, that you put your integrity on the line, that you tell us what you're going to do, and then you do it. And seeing examples of that in Scripture just thrill our hearts. And Lord, it makes us long for more to come. Makes us long for your eventual return and your establishment of your kingdom, our inclusion where we will reign with you. Father, I pray that we will have a true appreciation for the power of prophecy, that it is a way that you could see you at work and in action. And we look forward to the full culmination of all those blessed promises and prophecies that you've given uh, to us. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.